All right, good morning, church. Nice to see you all this morning. Um, so we are looking at these things that we believe God is going to do in our lives when we stop going to church and we start being the church. Last week, we looked at what it means to be loved. If you were not here last week, so last week was Columbus Day weekend, and uh, we were a little thin here, you should really listen to that message on our podcast. That was one of the most powerful messages I've heard in a long time. So I really encourage you, if you didn't hear last week's sermon, go listen to it. This week, we are talking about what it means to be formed. So I want to just give us like a definition of that. What are we talking about when we say we are going to be formed Um, So basically, when we're talking about formation, we are talking about the process by which God is is shaping us into the likeness of Christ. So that's a phrase from 2 Corinthians 3, but that's really just a fancy way of saying that when we follow Jesus, and those of us that love Jesus, we actually begin to look more like Jesus. And this is not just by mimicking Jesus' actions. This is actually an inner process by which our inner life is transformed so that we become like Jesus in our heart, our mind, and our character. The Lord transforms us from within, not just externally. St. Clair of Assisi says this about formation. She says, we believe, or sorry, we become what we love, and who we love shapes what we become. Imitation is not a literal mimicking of Christ, Rather, it means becoming the image of the beloved, an image disclosed through transformation. We are being changed from within to look like Jesus. Isaiah 64, 8 describes our relationship to God in the formation process like a piece of clay and the potter. We are the clay, you are the potter, Lord. We are all the work of your hands. So formation is the process by which God, like a potter, shapes us inwardly to reflect the image of Jesus. That's what formation is. And that's what we believe is going to happen in your life when we stop going to church and we start being the church. So I want you to think for a moment about your family of origin, the family you grew up in. And I want you to think about, is there something about your family, some kind of unique thing about your family that you would say is this characteristic trait of your family? So this is something that people would look at you and say, that's such an Atwood thing, or that's such a Croft thing, that's such a Yokel thing. What is that thing? So I was thinking about my family. I couldn't think of anything very profound, but I have this really quirky thing that we do. We have this very particular way of doing something that has been passed down for four generations now, from my grandfather to my dad to me and to my son Noah. And I actually don't know Betsy, my sister is here, if you do this too. But it's the very particular way that we eat grilled cheese. So this is a very mundane little example. But um, so we make grilled cheese the way almost anybody else makes grilled cheese. You butter up some bread, put cheese in the middle, fry it in a pan. But then before we eat it, we spread a layer of golden spicy brown mustard on top. Yes. And then we eat it kind of like you would eat a bagel because you don't want to get your hands all messy. You kind of eat it sideways. Anyway, I have never met anyone else who does this. If you do this, maybe we're cousins, and that would be kind of fun. But I'm convinced that if somebody knew my grandfather and didn't know my son and saw my son eating grilled cheese this way, that they would be able to say, that kid must be a Cowan. I can see that this kid is a Cowan. And this is what happened uh, to the apostles. So in Acts 
chapter 4, the beginning of the church, Peter and John, these are two men who had been with Jesus. They'd been his disciples. They are preaching about Jesus. They're preaching boldly, and they get thrown in prison for preaching about Jesus. And they spend the night in jail, and then they're called before the Sanhedrin to be questioned, the Jewish authorities. And they continue to preach the gospel as they're being questioned. And then Acts 4.13 says this. When they saw the courage, when the people who were questioning them saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were ordinary, unschooled men, they were astonished. And they took note that these men had been with Jesus. Another way to translate that took note is they began to realize that these men had been with Jesus. When they looked at Peter and John, when they watched how they were interacting in the world, they reminded them of Jesus. They looked at them and they recognized Jesus in them. Because over the course of three years, Peter and John, following Jesus, had been formed and shaped like clay in the potter's hands to reflect the image of their teacher. And so in this moment, they're like, those guys were with Jesus. And that's actually what we believe is possible in your life. That as you follow Jesus, as you engage this process of formation, people will look at you and they'll be able to say, that person has been with Jesus. They'll recognize Jesus in your life. And I actually think that the church doubling down on this process of formation and saying yes to being formed into the likeness of Christ, that this is absolutely essential given our current moment in history. I think, and this is a really bold thing to say, and I may regret it later, but I think I'm not sure it's ever been more essential than it is right now. And the reason that I think that is that for the first time in history, the church in many parts of the world, like right here in Providence, Rhode Island, exists in a culture whose primary distinctive is that it is a reaction against Christianity. And so we are, when we are interacting in the world, we are being shaped and formed. We are clay. Something is going to shape and form us. We are being shaped and formed in a world that is operating in ways that are in direct opposition to Jesus' way of life. And so if we are going to be a church that continues to engage this world, that doesn't run away from this world, that continues to love and be present and be in the world. And if you haven't figured it out yet, Sanctuary Church is that kind of church. We want to be in the world. Then our formation becomes essential. It becomes essential for us because we need to remember who we are. So for example, Jesus teaches us to love our enemies. We are being formed in a world that teaches us that people who just sit on the other side of the political aisle are repulsive. So if we are going to continue to engage in this world, we need to remember who we are. We are people who love our enemies. We need to be formed in the image of Christ. But the other reason that this is important is because this formation is actually essential for the world. We live in a world where people are eating grilled cheese the same normal, boring way. And we know stuff. <laughs> We know the best way to eat grilled cheese and the only way that people will ever know there's a better way or even a different way is if a bunch of Cowans go into the world and eat grilled cheese boldly, even though nobody else is doing that. And that is what the church should be like. We know the best possible way to live. Jesus shows us the best possible way to live. He shows us what it means to be human. And so what better way 
for the world to know there is a different way to live. There is a way that leads to life and not to death than to run into a family called the church who is living boldly in a different way. And so our formation isn't just important for us to survive. Our formation is important for us because we're called to participate with God in the work that he's doing in the world. That's why this idea of formation is burning in my heart and in the leadership of our church. This is essential for this moment. So the text that I want to look at this morning is from Luke chapter 5. I'm actually going to have you bring it up if you have a phone or if you have a Bible. If you have a physical Bible, that would be crazy. Uh, But bring it up because I'm going to walk us through it, and you may want to follow along. Um, This is from the first moment that these two men that I described from Acts 4 encounter Jesus. This is their origin story as disciples. This is the moment that they choose into following Jesus. And these are two of the people who go on to begin the church as we know it. And so we want to look at this moment when they choose into this journey of following Jesus. And the reason that I picked this passage for formation is because when I look at this story, their very first interaction with Jesus, and it's mostly about Peter. John comes in at the end with James. Um, I see in their first encounter with Jesus all the elements of the formation process that God continues to use in their life and in our life. I see these elements that he uses to shape us like clay into the image of Christ. They're all present in this first moment that he calls them. So we'll start right at the beginning of Luke 5, verse 1. One day, as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, the people were crowding around him and listening to the word of God. He saw at the water's edge two boats left there by fishermen who were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, that's also Peter, he has two names, um, and asked him to put out a little from the shore. Then he sat down and taught the people from the boat. So the first piece of the formation process, the first kind of ingredient that God uses to form us and shape us is encounter, a direct personal interaction with God. So encounter. A lot of times when we think about encounter, we're imagining something uh, miraculous, something supernatural, something we can't explain, some neon sign in the sky. We imagine something crazy. And something crazy does come. There's this miracle in this story. But the encounter that Peter has with Jesus begins the moment that Jesus steps into his boat. It's a very ordinary kind of moment. There's a really practical reason that Jesus gets into his boat. It's an acoustic issue. He has these crowds that are crowding around him, and they can't hear him. Water carries sound, and actually the shore of Lake Gennesaret has these little curved inlets. And so if you put a boat just out from the shore and you preach from that boat, you're preaching in a natural amphitheater. And so he's getting into Peter's boat so that the crowds can hear him. So Jesus gets into Peter's boat, and he does two things with Peter that I think are sort of classic Jesus, classic encounter kind of moves that he has. So the first thing that he does is he interrupts Peter's routine. He interrupts his routine. He gets his attention that way. So Peter is done for the day. And we'll hear this later as we go through the text. He is done. He has fished all night. He is tired. He is washing his nets. He is probably on his way home 
And Jesus shows up and says, nope, we're doing something different today. He gets in his boat. He messes with his routine. He interrupts his day. Maybe some of you can relate to that. Maybe you are sitting here in church and you're like, how did I get here? This is not the status quo of my life. This is something weird. How did I end up here? I think a lot of times the way Jesus interrupts our routine is he brings a friend into our life who invites us or who is just makes us curious about Jesus, kind of like that grilled cheese thing. Jesus interrupts our routine, interrupts our status quo. Maybe your status quo is going to brunch on Sunday and you're here. Why are you here? Jesus may be interrupting your routine. He often does that to get our attention. But then the second thing he does with Peter is he moves Peter from the sidelines of the story right to the center of the action. So in the beginning of the story, Peter is just a bystander. He's not the center of the story. He's allowed Jesus to use his boat, but he's just listening. He's observing. He's not participating. And Jesus does not like to just be observed. This is not something that he wants. The heart of Jesus burns with this desire to be in relationship with us. He doesn't want to be observed from a distance. I, find, I, I have this feeling that's just so unsatisfying to Jesus to be in Peter's boat and not interact with him. And so there's this moment where he turns to Peter at the end and he begins to interact with him. And maybe that's something that Jesus wants to do in your life. Maybe you're more of a casual bystander, an observer. You're here to take everything in. And that's fine. And I promise you, we will never push you to do more than that. But I have this feeling that Jesus, at some point, is going to tap you on the shoulder and say, hey, I want to interact with you directly. Stop watching me interact with other people. I want to talk to you. I'm not satisfied to be observed from a distance. I want this. I want relationship That is what Jesus wants. And so for Peter, this looked like this moment where Jesus began to interact with him, and he gives him some really bad fishing advice. So verse 4, when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Peter, put out into deep water and let down the nets for a catch. Now Jesus is not a fisherman, He is the expert in the spiritual world, not in the fishing world. He might have some carpentry expertise as well, but he is definitely not an expert at fishing. And this is actually not good advice. Fish were caught at night. Peter had been fishing all night. He caught nothing. He probably thinks that Jesus doesn't know what he's talking about. Why are you telling me to do this? This makes no sense. And yet there's something about Jesus that compels Peter to trust him, to do what he says. And so verse 5, Simon answered, Master, we've worked hard all night, and we haven't caught anything. But because you say so, I will let down the nets. There's this openness in Peter, this trust that is almost hard to explain But Peter saying yes to this really bizarre advice is what opens the door for this miracle that happens next. There's an openness and a willingness that actually unleashes something of God's kingdom. Some of you may be in a similar place. There may be some way you're sensing God is inviting you to trust him. There's something, maybe it even doesn't feel like standard advice. 
Maybe it feels like eating grilled cheese with mustard on top. It's not normal. And yet there's some way that God is saying, trust me, my way is better. And I wonder, I'm not promising, but I wonder as you say yes, is there more of the kingdom that you will experience? Is there something that your yes will open up on the other side of that yes? A lot of times our obedience actually ushers us into new places of encounter with God. What is it that God's inviting you to trust him with this morning? So Peter, verse 6, he does this. When they had done so, when they let down their nets, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. This is after they had fished all night and caught nothing. Only the God of the universe, the God of the seas and the lakes and the fish could have produced this catch. And what I love about this image at the end of the boat sinking is the contrast between Peter at the beginning, just a casual bystander, his routine being interrupted, to being like physically overwhelmed with fish. He is physically overwhelmed by God's power encounter. This is the first ingredient in our formation. We need to have a direct encounter with God. Sometimes it's something miraculous, but a lot of times it's something a little bit more ordinary. God tapping us on the shoulder. God inviting us to the center of the story. Encounter. The second ingredient in our formation process is belief. So we see this in Peter's response. This is our kind of cognitive understanding the way, the things that we believe about God, about ourselves, and about the world. So in addition to having this direct encounter with God, our thoughts about God, what we think about him, is really important in our formation process. We can't begin to look like Jesus if we don't know and understand who he is. So we see this um, in verse 8. Something about this encounter begins to shape Peter's beliefs. So verse 8, when Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord, I am a sinful man. For he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken, and so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. So Peter is not going to piece together all the pieces quite yet. He does not totally know exactly who Jesus is. It's four chapters later in Luke that he figures out that Jesus is the Messiah, Jesus is the Christ. But there are two things that are clear that Peter is beginning to understand. One, that in the midst of this encounter with Jesus that he has, something about this interaction with Jesus has ushered him into the presence and power of God. There is a connection here. But the second thing is about him, that in comparison to God, he falls short. He falls short. So on the surface of things, this response, falling at Jesus' knees, saying, go away from me, this seems kind of bizarre. There's a lot of other ways I might think to respond. But a couple of things about this. First of all, Luke includes this detail of the story for his readers and for us. This is a common response to an encounter with God that we see in the Old Testament. Isaiah 6 is one of the best examples of this. When we encounter God, we're like overwhelmed by our sinfulness. And so Luke includes this detail because he's trying to signal to us, Jesus is God. Just in case you didn't notice, that's a clue for us. Peter doesn't totally understand that yet. 
but something is happening for him. N.T. Wright, who is a writer and a biblical scholar, has this great analogy that I thought was helpful here. So this rabbi who has stepped into Peter's boat is suddenly shining like a spotlight. He is shining with all the, the glory and the power of God that has suddenly been revealed in him as he has done this miracle. And the point of the spotlight is to point the way to life, to point the way to the Father. Jesus shows us who God is, what God is like, and how to be in relationship with God. But when that spotlight shines on us, it does the very same thing to us. It shows us who we are and what we are like. And that's what's happening to Peter. He is just suddenly seeing himself in light of God's power and holiness and glory. He is becoming aware, God is holy, God is powerful, God is perfect, and I am not. I am weak, I am imperfect, I am sinful, I am not God. And this belief that is being shaped and formed in Peter is going to be essential for him as he is about to begin a journey of being Jesus' disciple. Jesus is about to call him to be his disciple. He'll spend three years with him. And then Peter and his friends are going to go on to begin the movement of the church as we know it. And so for Peter to understand who he is and who God is, who he's not in this moment is going to be so critical because it is so tempting to believe that God chooses us or that he loves us or that he uses us or that he sticks with us because of something he sees in us, because of our good behavior, because of our performance. Why is that so tempting? That is not the gospel. It's the opposite of the gospel. It is tempting for us to believe that, I think, because that puts us in control. I can if I can control my behavior and make Jesus love me, that makes me feel secure. But that is not the gospel. That is wrong belief. And if we, if we believe this like little difference here, who, why, why am I chosen by Jesus? Because I'm good or because Jesus is good? If we believe it, if we have this little like misstep in belief here, how we follow Jesus is so different, right? Some of us struggle with this. We strive in our relationship with Jesus. We worry in our relationship with Jesus. We try so hard to impress him. We struggle with anxiety that he will reject us. When we know that we're not chosen because of anything in us, but because of who Jesus is, we are safe, we are secure, we are alive, we are free. There's a real difference. This little difference in belief will change how we follow Jesus. So this is so good for Peter, this moment here. And this actually reminds me of something that happened to me about a year ago. I was on a silent retreat, and all, I was sort of examining some patterns in my life. And all of a sudden, I became aware there are some deep cravings and desires in my heart that sometimes eclipse my desire for Jesus. The word that kept coming up for me on this retreat was enchanted. My heart is enchanted by these things. I want to be enchanted by Jesus, but I need to be disenchanted by these other things to be able to make space in my heart for Jesus. And so I'm becoming aware of this, and I cannot figure out how to fix it. 
I can fix my behavior. I don't know how to fix these deep desires and cravings in my heart. So I brought this problem to my spiritual director, who is someone who is older and wiser than me, who helps me to discern the voice of God in my life. And I'm like, Deb, I need help. I can't figure out how to fix this. Help me. And she laughed and she said, Sarah, this is so good for you. This is the beginning of transformation because you have come to the end of yourself. There's nothing you can do to make yourself holy. And actually what I want you to do right here is to sit here. Sit here. Rest here was actually the word that she said. Rest here. Look at yourself. See yourself for who you are. Then invite Jesus to meet you there. And on, the, you know, on one hand, that's like a totally unsatisfying answer. I want a prescription. I want to fix this. But on the other hand, this is the way that leads to life. To know I am not God. I cannot change myself. So Peter and me, neither of us has the power in us to change ourselves. We, formation is not something we can do to ourselves. We can modify our behavior. But if we want inner transformation, we need the power of the Holy Spirit. And so formation, we need to understand, is a process that we choose into, but that God does to us and in us. It's not something we can do to ourselves. And there is a kind of rest in that to know that we can't do that, we can't change ourselves, but we are loved and Jesus will be faithful to shape us and to change us. So encounter, belief, right? Thinking about God. But then what, what is our role? If we, don't, if we don't do formation to ourselves, how do we participate? What is our role? The third ingredient in our formation journey is praxis. This is our role. This is our activity. These are the things that we do. This is the way that we choose in to our formation journey. And for the disciples, this comes at the very end. So verse 10. Then Jesus said to Simon, Don't be afraid. From now on, you will fish for people. So they pulled their boats up on shore, left everything, and followed him. So this is the moment that Jesus is telling these men, you can be like me. You can do what I do. You can be my disciples. In this moment, he is redefining their sense of calling, their sense of purpose, their sense of identity, and their very future. This moment is going to change not only their lives, but the course of human history. And in response to what Jesus is saying, Peter, James, and John engage this invitation with their entire lives. They leave their livelihood. They leave their field of expertise to be people who know nothing. They are expert fishermen. I don't know if they're experts, but they know how to do that, and they're beginning a journey where they don't know. They're leaving everything behind. And what strikes me here is that their praxis isn't confined to a neat little religious box. So when Jesus says, I will make you fishers of people, he doesn't, their response is not great. We will meet you at the synagogue next Saturday and you can have an hour to disciple us. That is not their response. 
When Jesus invites us to follow him and to be his disciples, the invitation is to do that with our entire lives. That's what these guys do. They give Jesus all the space that they have. Now, the application for us is not to leave our jobs tomorrow. That is not the right way to apply this scripture. It might be, but I don't know. But it's not universally the right way to apply the scripture. But the application is, for example, if you go to work tomorrow, to be a disciple at your work, to give Jesus all of that space, to do our praxis not just here, but everywhere that we have space. And I believe the extent to which we will be formed, the extent to which we will look like Jesus is directly related to the extent to which we allow Jesus to invade every part of our life. How much real estate are you willing to give Jesus? How much time will you give him? How much space in your life will you make for this call to follow him and to be his disciple? Jesus wants to encounter us. There are beliefs that he wants to shape in us, but he needs space to do that, and that's our part. Praxis is about making space for God to move. I think that can look like a couple of different things. We can make space by being intentional about our spiritual practices through the week, to open up space in our schedule and our time to be with Jesus. We do not have the luxury of following Jesus around like the disciples did and actually physically being with him, but we do have the luxury of being with him anytime that we want. And so part of our praxis is opening up space for spiritual practices. The other part of our praxis are these spontaneous moments in our day where we have an opportunity to exercise faith. So anytime we love our enemies or we exercise generosity, there are these little moments we can't plan for. This is a chance for praxis. And so we can give Jesus space by being intentional, but we can also give him every single moment of our day. How do we live like Jesus in this moment? And does he have access to it? And they're related. The more time that we spend with Jesus in the planned spaces, the more likely we will respond with his way of life in the unplanned moments. The key thing, though, so little caveat that I just want to make sure we understand about praxis. It is not our religious activity. It's nothing that we do for God that actually changes us. So without the power of the Holy Spirit working from within us, our praxis is dead. It is dead religious activity. It is mimicry at best. We can imitate Jesus, but for real lasting change from within, the best way to think about praxis is that it is a pathway only. It's not the destination. All of the spiritual practices that we do, praying, reading the scripture, being here on a Sunday morning, this is not the goal. This is not the destination. It's the pathway that leads us to encounter. Our beliefs are shaped as we journey, but our praxis is not the goal. The Holy Spirit is the only one who can form us, and praxis just puts us in his presence. So, encounter belief and praxis. I believe that these ingredients are the things that God tends to use when he shapes and forms us into the image of Christ. And the last thing that I want to say this morning is that we need all three. We need all three of these to be fully formed into Christ's image. When even just one of these three things is missing, our formation is cut short. 
So I want you just to think about this for a moment. When encounter is missing, when we do not have a direct encounter with Jesus, when we have belief and praxis present, what we can run into is dead orthodoxy. We have good ideas about God. We have some good practice, but it becomes rote and dead. Why are we doing these things? So think about this. If Peter had arrived at some ideas about who Jesus is and he begins to follow him, but he never talks to him. They sit in a room and Peter is like taking notes, trying to make sure he gets every little detail of what Jesus is doing. He is like practicing and practicing and practicing, but he never talks to Jesus. There is no relationship. That's what happens when encounter is missing. When our belief is off, we have encounter and we have praxis, but we don't have right thinking about God. This is where we get cults. So we have profound spiritual encounters. We have crazy religious practices, but they're dangerous, okay? So this would be if Peter had interacted with Jesus and had this moment where the fish came into his boat and he decided to follow Jesus, but the whole time he thought that miracle happened because he had magic nets. When he goes on to plant the church, maybe he would plant the magic fishing net society. And that would be the thing that he's passionate about. His, his belief is wrong. His praxis is gonna be really messed up. We need to have right thinking about God. And then lastly, if we don't have praxis, if we have encounter and belief, but we're missing the action, we're missing our part. To be honest, I think that's what happens on Sunday morning in churches all over the place. We come here, we have this profound encounter in worship. Sometimes our beliefs are radically shaped in the teaching. And then what happens tomorrow? That is something that I think is very common for us. We have a moment with God, but we don't make space for him in the rest of our lives. And so this morning, the invitation is to lean into all three. So I have two ways to respond this morning. One is just to think about those three ingredients and think about which one in your life is weak. Which one do you want to lean into a little, a little harder? Some of you need an encounter with Jesus. Some of you have never had that. You don't even have a category for interacting face-to-face -face with Jesus. Maybe you're on the, the, the kind of observer sideline category and Jesus wants you to talk to him face-to-face. -face. Maybe some of you have been going to church your whole life and you've never had an encounter with Jesus. And that actually makes me sadder than anything else. And sometimes I think that's the church's fault. But I believe that God wants to know you. And so if you've been someone who just has been attending church, but you've never known God intimately, today might be the day that you interact with him face to face. Some of you need to lean into the belief category. Some of you are brand new to exploring Jesus and you like him, but you don't know a lot about the way of Jesus. Some of you need to dig into some books to read the scriptures. Some of you have questions, maybe that you're even afraid to ask, but right thinking about God is so critical. Some of you need to make some space to examine your beliefs about God. And then lastly, some of you just need to make some more space in your praxis to 
to do the things, to do your part, to respond to the encounter and the belief. Regardless of which category, anything that we kind of write down that's like our part, we have a praxis invitation. And so I want to encourage you to keep from having a moment right here. If you're having a moment, please don't let that just be a moment that doesn't impact tomorrow. Open up space for God to move in your life tomorrow. And then the last thing that I think, I hope that this just kind of sits well with us. We can take a deep breath and remember that there's actually an invitation to trust here to trust that God can and will shape you and form you into the image of Christ as you follow him. Some of us are overwhelmed by the disconnect between what we see in ourselves and what we see in Jesus. Some of us are having a Peter moment where we're falling on our knees right now. That's actually a good moment. Don't, don't run away from that moment. That's actually an invitation to rest it's an invitation to trust that no matter what you see in yourself, no matter what you see in your past, no matter what your flaws are, no matter what things you feel like will never change, nothing is beyond the power of God to shape and to transform. You are clay. There is no clay that the potter can't work with. Some of you need to believe that and you don't believe that this morning. And I wanna invite you to just fall on your knees to tell God, to be honest, I cannot do this without you. I'm a sinner, I need you. There is rest in that place. And if that's you, I would love for you to, to go receive prayer as we take communion. There'll be people who would love to pray with you to invite God's power into that place where you are powerless. I want to close our time this morning by inviting us to the communion table. And what better way, I think, to end than to reflect and remember that infinite love of Jesus that was poured out for us on the cross. The places in us that we feel like are broken, are dead, are sinful, are in need of transformation, Jesus died so that we could be made whole. And at the communion table, we remember the night before Jesus died, he shared a meal with his friends. He took some bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said to his disciples, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then after supper, he took the cup of wine and said, this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. And the apostle Paul tells us that every time we come to the communion table, we proclaim Jesus's death until he comes. And on the surface of things, that's not, so I wanna celebrate and proclaim the resurrection, not his death. But why do we proclaim his death every time we come to the table? because that is the greatest act of love the world has ever known. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So I'm gonna pray for us, but in a moment you can come to the center aisle, come up, take the bread, dip it in the cup. And if you would like to receive prayer, you can line up on this side. And if you're in the balcony, we'll come up to you. Let's pray. 
Lord, we are the clay and you are the potter. Sometimes we feel like we are impossible to work with, but Lord, we know that you are at work in us. We thank you, God, for the gift of your Holy Spirit. We thank you, God, that we are not alone on this journey, that there is absolutely no reason to believe that we can't look like you. So God, would you work your resurrection power in us today? Raise us to life. As we take the bread and dip it in the cup, would you remind us of your death and also your resurrection and your power at work in us today? In Jesus' name, amen. Come to the table as you feel led.